direct your attention now to the Word of God, to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 9, and I will read that par- two paragraphs there. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The key phrase in all of this passage is the very last one, the kingdom of of God, the kingdom of God. Jesus came as the rightful heir to the kingdom of God. He was the son of God. He is the prince of peace. He is the heir of all things. To him, God has given the nations, the peoples, the ethnic groups of the entire world over all of human history. Christ is a real king of a real kingdom. In fact, he notes that some listening to him, and at this point, Jesus is speaking in the first paragraph we read to his disciples. Peter has just made that confession that says, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the savior, the ruler of Israel. And Jesus had implored him. It's interesting the language Jesus used. He strictly charged and commanded them. You begin to see Jesus sort of assume a posture of authority. And he will continue to do that. Humbly and early in his ministry, he told the people, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And now he is beginning to assume and assert more and more of that authoritative, rightful position that is his as the king. In fact, he will say following his resurrection and preceding his ascension, he will say all authority in heaven and in earth is given to me. Actually, that's the whole point of the passage. God is calling you today, daily, to be part of his kingdom, to be a citizen. He is calling for your allegiance, your commitment, your consecration, your devotion, your self-sacrifice, moving beyond yourself and your goals and your ambitions and what you want to do with your life 
and surrender that and commit that, deposit that with Christ and His kingdom. The second paragraph, he's talking to them all. He said to all, and all means all, and that's all it means. That's all of us. That's those to whom he spoke at the moment and those down through the years whom he calls to be citizens in his kingdom, soldiers in his army, servants in his league. And that's what it means to take up your cross daily and follow him. This is all about the kingdom of God. One of the things that will impress upon a preacher as he struggles to preach the whole counsel of God throughout a lifetime is is how we are called as pastors and preachers and even as Christians entirely to be heralds of the King and His kingdom. The message does not change. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the kingdom, came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter preached on Pentecost, repent. The message hasn't changed. God is calling us to repent of our sins, to turn our backs upon a former way, and to walk in newness of life. That's the call. And when he tells this to his disciples in that first paragraph there, it's interesting the way he puts some things. And let me just point out a couple of things. He charged them strictly that they were not to tell anyone about this this manifestation that the other narratives of the gospel tell us that flesh and blood had not revealed that to Peter. But the Lord himself, the Father himself had spoken and made it clear to Peter in the inside of his being who Jesus was. Who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. God has to come to each one of us with an effectual call and teach us, tell us, convince us, persuade us, draw us into an understanding of his kingship, his lordship, his sovereignty, his majesty. And that had happened to Peter. And it happened to the other disciples as well, we presume, because they all were of one accord in that answer. Thou art the Christ. But he said, don't tell anyone. He strictly charged them, don't tell anyone. And the reason is because it's a confusing and a confounding message about this kingdom. The kingdom unfolds. Jesus gave many parables about the kingdom. He talked about it being small, like a little mustard seed, and then it would spread. He had many, many parables about the kingdom, what the kingdom would be like. And at this point, the kingdom was enfolded in the king, and it was mysterious, and it was cryptic. But it was going to be manifest widely. In fact, that's what that last verse says. I tell you truly that some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In what sense? Well, they'll see the kingdom of God in the raising up of the king, the resurrection. 
When the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. They'll see the coming of the kingdom of God in the ascension. When the glory cloud, the mighty glory cloud that hovered over Israel in the wilderness took Jesus up from them out of sight and they stood there with their jaws dropped onto their chest. And the angel had to say, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. But there's another way that Jesus projects a generation. Some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom. There was an event that would take place one generation later. The generation in scripture is generally considered a 40, 40 year span. The generation in the wilderness were in the wilderness 40 years. David served as king of Israel for 40 years in his generation. So did King Saul and King Solomon. Jesus said, this generation will not pass until some of these things be accomplished. He said, till all these things be accomplished. All the things they needed to see the glory of God. What did they see about 40 years after Jesus was speaking here in approximately 30 AD? What did they see 40 years later? 70 AD. They saw the kingdom of Israel utterly obliterated by Titus, the Roman emperor, came through and laid siege to all of Galilee and all of Judea and eventually made it to the city of Jerusalem itself and destroyed everything that posited itself as a kingdom in Israel. The palace and all the petty potentates of the house of Herod, Antipas, Antipater, they all were destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. The temple, the majestic temple was destroyed as well as was the house of Aaron. The priesthood was, was slaughtered and scattered. Never would there be any semblance of a kingdom of Israel again. And the modern Zionist state is not a resurrection of that kingdom in any sense. There's no sacrificial system. There's no priesthood. There's no covenant keeping. Never has Israel been raised again because the truth is that Israel resided in the King, Christ. And those that were in Him, eventually Paul would tell us both Jew and Gentile, would be in Christ and would make up the citizens of the kingdom, those who had taken up their cross and had followed him. Notice the things that Jesus said that would take place immediately there in verse 23. I'm sorry, in verse uh, 22. He says, the son of man must suffer many things. He was going to suffer. He was suffering actually a lot of persecution and privation, but he would suffer even more immensely than that. The way to a crown is through a cross. You bear a cross before you wear a crown. 
And that's what Jesus Christ did. Notice that all of these things that he said would happen to him are in the passive. It is something that will be done to him. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He will be raised. We call this the passive obedience of Christ where he, after living a perfect life of obedience to the Father and got the Father's blessing when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He now has to undergo a surrender, a giving up, a laying down. And he must be subjected to some things of suffering. One of the interesting things is that little word there, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest, and the scribes. That is the authority structure of the house of Israel. The scribes were the doctors of the law. They were the heirs of the prophets. The chief priests were the heirs of Moses and Aaron. They ran the priesthood. And the elders were the governors. They were the heirs of the king, the crown prophet, priest, and prince of Israel will reject Christ as the Messiah. Notice that little word. It said he will be rejected by the elders. I found this a fascinating study and I just couldn't, I couldn't let go of it. It's the word doxamatia in the Greek, the word rejected. And you know what it refers to principally? It was that process in ancient Athens where the city governors would examine a man to see if he was qualified to be a magistrate in Athens. In other words, it was an examination to see if he had what it takes, if he met the qualifications, if he knew the law, if he knew, if he knew what he needed to know, if he was who he needed to be in order to be a magistrate in the Athenian government. Jesus was so examined, he was brought before the authorities of his day. And he was judged to be unfit. Didn't come from the right house. Didn't work in the right social circles. Didn't teach the right doctrine. Whatever the means and whatever the criteria was, for a magistrate, a petty magistrate, by the way. He flunked. Here he stood, the King of the kings and the Lord of the lords. But he was rejected. That was in Athens they had that system. That's the wisdom of this world. Athens symbolizes the wisdom of ancient humanity rejected. The cross of Christ is to the world foolishness to the Greeks. To the Jew, it's a scandal to think that this carpenter of Nazareth would take on the throne of David. And so he was rejected. Pilate stood there representing Rome Herod was there representing Judah. Both agreed that day that Jesus was not 
the man. He was not the king. And yet the Bible says, on the third day, he was raised. That's where the authority comes from. It comes from Christ paying that price, living that life, dying that death, making that atonement, bearing the, the very sins and burdens of his people, whether they're Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or free, ancient or modern, God's people. The cross, the crucifixion of Christ is that which cuts off and separates that which divides between God's people and those that come under God's wrath. The glory of God was demonstrated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel. You say, how so, Ron? God's wrath and His righteous judgment those that reject Jesus, that is, the elders, the priests, the scribes, the establishment of Israel, those that rejected Christ were judged, condemned, destroyed. And it has always been thus in God's economy. There's a point at which God will slam the door shut. He did it in the ark. In Noah's day, he will do it in the last day. That's why I often say in discussion sometimes with people that the gospel call is not just an invitation. It's a summons. Come or else. Come to Christ. Take up that cross. Deny yourself. Paul describes this life when he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He says, I'm crucified to the world. And happily, the world is crucified to me. There's a kingdom. There's a king that is above that which we see. I know it's hard for us to, keep, to get that vision. We live in a world where we hear all about the kingdoms of this world. What's going on in Korea? What's going on in China? What's going on in Ukraine? What's going on in Virginia? But what's going on in God's kingdom? To bring it quite personal, there was a hymn writer of about 130 years ago, and I think you're probably familiar with this, Francis Havergill made it very personal, this devotion, this surrender, this coming and laying down our lives and giving ourselves to Christ and swearing allegiance to Him and fighting and living and dying for His cause. It says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. 
Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you shall choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Is that your heartbeat this morning? If it is not, let me implore you to repent, to turn around, to turn away from sin and self and turn to Christ and his eternal, everlasting kingdom.